Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 10 of a fanfiction titled The Hunt by today's guest fanfiction writer, Venomous Barbie. Refusing to let herself fall prey to more spinning thoughts, Hermione went on a walk. The abandoned flower garden soon appeared in her view, its dead leaves and brown twigs a powerful reminder of everything that had been lost. Her friends, her dignity, her humanity, her independence. War was a sweep of devastation tarnishing all the plants in its path to destruction, only leaving behind scraps of what was once whole and vibrant with color. It drained the world until there was no more than hints of gray amidst the black, the obscure, the darkness. Hermione had made many choices in the past few years, few she was proud of, few she wanted to repeat, many she regretted, and wished she could take back. She knew it was an unrealistic desire. After all, she had taken those decisions out of urgency. Survival. They were born of distress. She couldn't possibly be held culpable for the moral shortcomings she had displayed. Could she? Maybe God would disagree with her. Maybe he expected her to sacrifice herself to the cause, like his son had. Maybe she should have returned her bloodstained tunics to the altar of her shame and died uncovered, unashamed, for all to see and behold. But Hermione was no believer, not anymore, though bits and pieces of her former religious education still wormed themselves through her thoughts and her dreams. She had forgotten the ideas and the treacherous conceptions that tied her to God. She, she only saw the devil now, the way he sauntered past her when Theodore Knott walked the haunted corridors of the manor. The way he teased her when the body of her enemy came too close to her own. The way he called to her when the nightmares of Ron tore her away from safety. He was always there, looking at her, waiting for her next move. Dragging her through depravity, he played her like a flute. Pan calling out to his followers, the piper, waiting. To be paid. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction writer today is Venomous Barbie. She has been a member of AO3 since 2021 and has 24 fanfiction works posted for Harry Potter. Venomous Barbie is a horror and social satire enthusiast. And in her spare time, she loves to stand on her balcony, staring out into the sky like a tragic heroine. And her favorite food is ratatouille. Hell yeah! Venomous Barbie, welcome to Fanfic Maverick. How are you today? 
Hi, Chaos Blue. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I'm great. Having a, a great day today. How are you? I'm so, so good. Um, we had originally planned to have you on the show earlier this year, um, but circumstances got a little out of hand <laughs> with the two of us, I think. So I'm so glad that we could reschedule. So glad that we could have you come on. Your name has come up several times in prior episodes, which will be coming out here in the next couple of months. So needless to say, I am so excited to have you here, especially after reading your fic. Your fic was so original and so so interesting. And I can't wait to talk about it. But of course, we have to backtrack from that for a little while because <laughs> we start with people's history with fan fiction. Everybody kind of has their own origin story on how they discovered it. I want to know if you remember how you discovered fan fiction for the first time and what did you think about it? So it's actually a very funny story. And the reason that I remember is because it's so odd. So I was about 12. And at the time, I was pretty much every French teen was on this platform called Skyblog, which was a derivative from a, a radio station. And literally everyone had one. Everyone, uh, you know, that I knew who was French or who was French speaking had one. And so they have this sort of algorithm. It's not as sophisticated as what you have now on like TikTok and, and Twitter and whatnot. But there was this sort of recommendation algorithm for other blogs that you could go through. And I ended up following on a, a few blogs that had uh, 90210 and One Tree Hill fan fiction. And the reason that this is funny is because I didn't actually watch a lot of TV as a kid. And I didn't know that these were TV shows. So I was assuming that there was a collective of writers who all chose the same names for these characters and who all used the same photos of the same actors. And that <laughs> no this was way. all original fiction. <laughs> and I, I, I was so convinced of that. I, did, I had no clue what fan fiction was. I had no clue that these were shows. So I was just assuming that they were all these writers who had done that, made that choice. And I binged through so many of these fakes, having zero prior knowledge of the canon. And it didn't click. Until uh, upon stumbling, I stumbled upon blog after blog of fan fiction. I found a St. Myony fic. It was my very first Harry Potter fic. And that was when it clicked because I knew Harry Potter. I had read the books. The last one had come out a year prior to me discovering fan fiction. So it was a very hot topic at the time already. And on that blog, the author had a link to her story cross-posted on fanfiction.net. And that's how I landed on the website. But before that, I just assumed original fiction. Everyone was called Brooke for some reason, and they all used Sophia <laughs> Bush. And it, it, it was just a, like a, a fever dream. <laughs> and it took me several years to understand because I did not learn about these TV shows existing and what they were until I think maybe when I was 16, so like four years later. <laughs> that is so hilarious. Can I just say, though, that if I had encountered stories in those same fandoms, I would have no idea what they were either because I didn't watch those shows, you know? So I would have been like, oh, this is so strange, you know? And I just love the idea of you kind of thinking, wow, isn't that uncanny <laughs> that everybody's using the same character names for their characters in these original stories? Oh, my gosh. What did you think when it finally clicked for you and you discovered fanfiction.net? What was that like for you? An entire world just exploded behind my eyes because you know I'd been writing at this point I'm like 
when I finally find uh, it, it, it was a year, a year of me reading One Tree Hill and 90210 fan fiction before I stumbled onto that Sevmini fic. So at this point, I'm like 13. And for five years, I'd already been writing. And for me, writing was about writing your original content. That's what it was. So me finding out that there was this entire community of people online writing stories about pre-existing books and films and TV shows was just absolutely mind-blowing. Immediately, I fell down the rabbit hole. I started binging fix. I would be reading. I was always a, a light sleeper. I have insomnia and I was always a big reader. So I would be already reading until 3 a.m. But this got worse. I started reading until 5 a.m., which is not good for the brain of a 17-year-old. But no, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I was reading so much. Actually, for that, that, yeah, that first year, 90210 and Winter Hill fan fiction, I was more reasonable with my time. And then the Harry Potter fan fiction, because I knew the world very well. I had just read the last book, you know, just like two years prior. It was all very fresh and the movies were still coming out at the time. So it was this sort of like, oh my God, there is so much, everything that I wanted to see resolved in the books that didn't get resolved, someone has written for me and I can just go ahead and read that. It was such an incredible experience. I think my, it took me such a long time to process mentally, especially because of the, of the, Cognitive dissonance with with the 90210 One Tree Hill experience that had been such a number on, on my mind. And it, it, honestly, it, I fell in love with fan fiction pretty much the moment that I understood what it was. And I haven't stopped ever since. And that was like, that was nearly 15 years ago. Oh, I love that story so much. That is hilarious that that is how you discovered fan fiction. I think I've never heard a story like that before. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, especially that moment of it clicking for you, you know, like, oh, my God. I think that the additional confusion was I was reading all these fanfics. They were all written in French. I was on the French. It was a French platform. Most of the blogs were in French. There were other languages available, but French was predominant. And all these stories had like American names, right? Because these are American shows. So I was like, why, why did they do that? <laughs> why would they all choose these American names? <laughs> that makes it even funnier, actually. That makes it even funnier. I love that. I love that so, so much. You know, you mentioned the writing of original fiction, right? That's what I was doing when I was in my teens. I'm not one of those brilliant creative people that it occurred to me to write fan fiction before I knew what it was. I know a lot of people have that where they start writing it before they discover it for the first time. That was not me. <laughs> um, me neither. Yeah, I, I kind of get the sense that perhaps you were writing original fiction before you ever started writing fan fiction. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, the journey that you had starting out with writing original stuff. And then what made you decide to jump into the fan fiction side? So I started writing when I was eight and I haven't stopped since. It's been nearly 20 years. Um, and I actually started not even with fiction or I started writing poems. First thing that I ever wrote was a poem. I was eight. And for some reason, and I still cannot explain why that ever happened in my mind. It was the story of a, a 19th century woman who was not allowed to join the Marines and she wanted to. And so she was dreaming of like the boats in the water and stuff like that. And it was a Shakespearean sonnet. So not entirely because it was written in French and we do not have, we can't have iambic pentameters in French because of, it's a different language. It's, I'm not going to go into details of that, but it was mostly a Shakespearean sonnet. And then I kept writing poetry 
at around age 11, I also started a diary. So I was writing a lot, but I was mostly writing either from my own experience or I was writing very short texts about like my thoughts and my ideas. I wrote one text from where I was taking the perspective of a, um, a pencil sharpener. So like the thoughts of a pencil sharpener, that kind of stuff. It was kind of wacky, but none of it was actually stories until I think age 12. That's really when I started to want to write my own stories. I wanted to, a lot of it was fantasy. A lot of it was escapism for me. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a very happy child and I would like to imagine other worlds that I could, I could go to. So I created a lot of aborted novels that were maybe 12 or 13 pages long, like maybe 10,000 words, but I was really young. And when I found fan fiction, I actually started, I did a lot of reading before I did any writing. I kept writing original fiction throughout all that time. As I, you know, as I was going through puberty and all that and going through some actually some pretty traumatic experiences, I started writing a lot of darker material, a lot of short stories. I submitted a few, a lot of poetry, but all of it was, I, I think a lot of it had a lot of self-insert, even though it wasn't very, like very much a conscious process on my part I just I didn't know how to write the story of anything other than a you know a 13 or a 14 year old girl going through turmoil a lot of it I think I, I found one story in particular to this day I don't know exactly what the plot was supposed to be because it was so wacky it was about this girl 13 and she finds an apple she breaks her arm trying to get an apple from the tree that's beside her window she eats that apple and then the apple keeps reappearing everywhere. In the meantime, her best friend is turning into a bear and attacking her. And then at one point, the apple is sort of like, I don't know, it was a metaphor for something. But the apple is like pouring acid on her. It's just like, just really weird stuff. At one point, her parents just up and go. They just abandon her. And all that, I think, was a, it was more of a reflection of my own like my own in, inner turmoil and my inability to process it. And then when I was 16, I made the decision to start writing fan fiction. It happened because I found an incomplete Dramini story on fanfiction.net and the author had left a last note saying, if anyone is interested in picking this up and continuing it, please let me know. Reached out to the author who was actually more than happy to let me continue it. I will say now that I did not finish it either. <laughs> I abandoned it. I did continue it. You gave bit. it a valiant try. <laughs> you know what? I tried. <laughs> I did abandon it eventually, but I, I tried. And that was my first attempt at writing fan fiction. And then I had a very intense fan fiction period of writing after about a year, year and a half, and then immediately went back to original fiction. And I didn't really delve back into fan fiction until 2021. Wow. So you had this really long break in the middle yeah. there. Sounds like in your you know late teens, early 20s, where you were just focusing all on the original stuff again and not doing fan fiction. Was there a reason why? Like when you think back on it, is there a reason why you kind of moved away from fan fiction for yeah. a little while? So I think originally when I was 17, it's because I started writing what I planned at the time to be my first novel. So that one is also abandoned. Well, it's abandoned as in I did finish writing it, but it is terrible and it will never see the light of day. It's really bad. But I was, I was happy. I completed the thing. You know, I finished it. That was already something that I was very proud of. And the other reason is I actually pretty much didn't write for a long time, like at all. 
I was going through, you know, I went through my late teens and my early 20s were some of the worst years of my life. I dropped out of university. Uh, I went back eventually, but I did drop out initially. I was very lonely. I was going through a lot of uh, mental turmoil and I was still undiagnosed with those. I have issues, but none of them were diagnosed. It was just a very difficult time mentally. So even writing couldn't bring me the solace that it used to when I was younger. And I think it's because at this point, I wasn't able to write the metaphors that I used to, these sort of wacky, nonsensical metaphors that were so removed from my reality, but that still felt like they were expressing something. At this point, life got too real. I was an adult. And the only thing that I wanted to write was the very real pain that I was experiencing. But even doing that was putting me in more pain. So I stopped writing, not completely but definitely not as consistently as I used to or do now for a period of time, I barely wrote. I did start one fun fiction in the middle there that I abandoned as well. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very interesting. And I wasn't really motivated to do it. I just kind of felt like I needed to write again. And that was the only thing that inspired me. But even that, uh, I lost steam on it very quickly because the act of writing was just very painful for a long time. So you you were saying that you picked fan fiction writing back up in about 2021, which makes sense. When you look at your profile on AO3, it says uh, 2021 on it. Yeah. Um, What was it about 2021 and that period in your life that made you want to pick it back up? So I started writing that fic in April 2021. I started posting it in May and I started planning it about January. And it it's kind of a weird thing that happened. I think. IRL, I had a few friends who had gotten back into their respective fandoms. Friends specifically, I will not name for the sake of privacy, but she was getting into her own fandom and she was doing a lot of things. She was writing fanzines and she was moderating discords and she was doing, she was having a lot of fun. And I saw that and it kind of reminded me of a, a time where I used to really enjoy being in fandom and writing fan fiction. And I think the other thing was I was in my second year of master's. And I nearly dropped out again, but I didn't. <laughs> I finished it. But I was doing a, it was, it was, you know, there was COVID. And that second year of master's was completely online, just very difficult. My job was also completely online. I was a teacher. I was teaching online. I was very isolated and I was just like bored. I was so bored, honestly. And I was like, oh, I have an idea. And this one I'm excited about. This one is something that I want to do. It's not something that I'm doing to just pass the time. I was like, I actually want to go somewhere with this. So I started planning it. I outlined it, yeah, around April. And then in, in April, something happened. My dad got COVID. He was in critical care. He wasn't doing well at all. He's fine now. But it was a very difficult time for me and my family. And at that point, writing was again, was back to being the thing that released me of my pain instead of being the thing that added to it. And I wasn't ready to go back to my original work just yet. So fan fiction it was. And I finally, after all these years, I don't know exactly what clicked. I think it was a series of factors. I can't say for sure exactly which one dominated, but I think a series of things like converged and made it possible for me to find finally pleasure in writing again. No, that makes so much sense. Like you said, probably a culmination of different factors that just happened to be right. And you were able to just jump back into it and have it be something positive 
in your life instead of something negative and adding to the pain, right? And the things that you're already going through. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we want to do things that bring us joy and and happiness and bring us pleasure, you know? And so I'm so glad to know that this latest foray into writing fan fiction has been that for you. At least I certainly hope it has been for you. Oh, for sure. Oh, good, 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 good. Because yeah, the things that you're coming up with here are so fresh and so interesting. You know, I, I've stated before that, you know, lots of people in your community have mentioned you. You're a name that comes up quite frequently. And I think a lot of that, of course, has to do with, uh, you know, your writing and also your involvement with different other fandom activities that I'm sure we'll mention here. In an email, you mentioned to me that you initially started writing out in French, which makes perfect sense, right? But then you eventually started writing things in English. And I was just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that process of learning how to write in another language. Like, were there things that you learned? Were there things that were challenging? What was that like? So my experience is a bit particular in the sense that I'm not technically, and I am both and not uh, an English as a second language person in a sense. I don't want to go into the details of my private life, but when I was eight, we moved abroad and in an English speaking country. And it was a very radical and sudden change, but we eventually uh, actually completely joined. Like we weren't expats. We were, we eventually completely joined that culture and that community that we were in. And English, I had to learn really fast as we got there. So I wrote in French for a long time. I actually... I actually had to think about this recently when I was on the on the previous podcast about the fanfic writer's craft. I was thinking about this for that podcast and I was trying to think, what was the logic from me writing in French, even as I was becoming fully bilingual in English? And then what happened? And I think the process that has been for me is I kept writing in French for a really long time because French was sort of my last link to my heritage. I was speaking French at home with my family, um, and I was speaking English everywhere. So writing in French was that connection back to my family that still lived in France, uh, to all of that culture that was kind of all of a sudden we moved, and it was a completely different change, and we had to adapt very quickly. And then I kept writing in French because at this point, I was far more confident in my craft. I did try to write in English uh, when I was 13, and I, I still have that story on my computer on a hard drive, on an Excel hard drive, but I still have it. And I reread it not so long ago, maybe a year ago. And it's bad. The prose is, is very bad. I'm using words in French in the middle that have a translation, but I was so convinced at the time that they were specifically French culturally in their meaning and everything. So I would, I would just use them in French, just stuff like that, that I wouldn't do today, that I would, I would do, I absolutely wouldn't do today. So it was, it was pretty bad. So French was just kind of easy for me. But there was also that comfort of that's like my culture. And then, you know, I moved again. I moved back to France a few years ago. And I, I you know, I started working. I went back to university, et cetera. And I was between, during a summer between two universities, I was working full time. I was working nights in a call center. And we, get, we got bored a ton during between the hours of 1 and 5 a.m. Nothing happened. A lot happened before, a lot happened after, but these were very empty hours. I'm a night owl. I have no difficulty staying up at night, but a lot of my colleagues would sleep on their desk. And I was just utterly bored. Everyone was asleep. I was up alone at my desk just waiting for something to happen. 
So I picked up this piece that I wrote back in 2016 that I couldn't manage to expand. I had written 2,000 words of it and I had stopped there. I couldn't get my head out of it. I didn't know how to do, and it had been three years of me trying to do something with it. It was original fiction. And that night, one of those nights, I tried something. I just started writing it in English instead, and it flowed immediately. And then I think that the reasoning was this time English was the link to a culture that I didn't have with me anymore because I'm speaking French all the time at work and with my friends and, you know, in everywhere, you know, in the streets, in the, in the stores, in the shops, etc. So English had become the flip side. And then I thought of, uh, you know, a few years go by, it's 2021. I'm like, okay, I could do both. And I couldn't go back to French. And I think this is because English and French, well, they're very different languages, obviously, but French is extremely rigid. So just to give you an example of this, we have what we call l'Académie Française, which is this institution that was initially created. They were meant to create a dictionary. They're still on letter C, by the way. And they don't actually, they just set random rules. So for example, when COVID happened, they were sorting out how are we going to name it? French is a gender language. So was it going to be male or female or whatever? And if they had followed their own rules and the grammar that, you know, existed, it should have been masculine because virus is a masculine name in French. And COVID is the name of the virus specifically. And for previous epidemics, when the Académie Française had to, like, statute on that stuff, they would use the masculine. And all of a sudden, even though everyone had been colloquially using COVID masculine form, the French Academy goes out and says, no, it's la COVID, the feminine form. So the press and the officials, everyone had to do that. And so it's, it's so arbitrary. It's very bureaucratic. It's very French. And so there's a rigidity to the language. It's still a language. So it's still living. It still changes with, you know, usage and everything, but it's still stuck in that sort of mold. English, on the other hand, has a sort of freedom. And I know there's a quote that I really love. It's an epigram by James Nicole. I don't know if you know it. I don't know if you want me to read it, but it's, I think it speaks to the freedom that English has uh, very beautifully. Yes. If you'd like to read that, that's perfect. It's just a very short quote. It says, the problem with defending the purity of the English language is that English is about as pure as a crit house whole. We don't just borrow words. On occasion, English has pursued other languages down alleyways to beat them unconscious and rifle their pockets for new vocabulary. It's like English doesn't have the Académie Française. There's so many there are variations of English, of course, due to, to colonialism. And countries like Canada and the U.S. are so big that you're going to have huge variations, you know, from one province to the other. And the English way of doing colonialism is very different from the French way of doing colonialism. So the French, when they colonized other countries, imposed their culture and their way of living. They didn't try. I'm not saying that English colonialism was better by any stretch of the word, but it was different. French was like imposing, you are French now. And so the language as well, through events like La Francophonie that are still happening yearly to celebrate speaking French in all the countries that they colonized and pillaged, and English, the English, when they colonized, they, I would say they were, it wasn't better, but they were smarter about it because they would try to integrate local governments and local cultures. And so it created new forms of English, right? So you have, in Singapore, you have Singlish, which is its own dialect in a way, 
It has its own structure. It has its own rules. It's not bad English. It's just a variation due to the history that it has with the UK. And so, you know, that's, that's really, that's a huge difference in the way that we speak. And English, therefore, has sort of that freedom, that adaptability that doesn't exist in French and that makes me more comfortable in using English now in writing. It was a long history lesson for no reason, but, you know. I'm so glad that you talked to us a little bit about that because it is so fascinating to me to speak with writers who are writing in English and English might not be their first language. And it's always fascinating to me to hear the different perspectives on it. Some people say that English is more limiting than their first language, or sometimes, you know, like for you, it sounds like English is more freeing. So, I, you know, I love the different perspectives and the reasons why people think the way that they do or why people do the things that they do. It's amazing and beautiful. And yes, I think history has a lot to do with that, with different languages and things, you know. I feel like the concept of freedom, honestly, has a lot to do with the general concept of fan fiction. That comes up a lot when I ask people what their general thoughts are on fan fiction as a concept. I'm wondering for you, fan fiction as a concept, what's most interesting and compelling for you about fan fiction? Actually, the first thing that comes to mind for me on that subject is community building. I say this because my experience for a really long time as an original fiction writer has been utter loneliness. I'm not saying that writing groups don't exist. They do exist and they've always existed, of course. But when you put a bunch of writers together who are writing original fiction, they're not writing about the same characters. They're not writing about the same worlds, even if they're writing in the same genre. It's very different. I have found it personally, and that is just my experience, but I have found it hard to actually settle in, in these groups. Fan fiction, I mean, fan fiction had, you know, started in, uh, with Star Trek in like the 60s and the 70s. It was a bunch of women who wanted to write then stories and they created, I think, conventions or something like that. And they, you know, they did all this even before social media. You had communities that existed in a variety of ways, sometimes online, but not necessarily because people rally around characters that they all know. And so there's this aspect of community that's just so important and that's so central to fan fiction, finding other people who are like-minded, who understand. And so you can have endless discussions about characters. You can have endless discussions about plot, about all these things, because we all know canon to a certain degree, and we all have a, a very basic understanding of that, and we all have thoughts on it. And we also all have different perspectives, especially with something like Harry Potter that's, this, that's so big, right? It's, it's global. So you have all sorts of perspectives that come also from different cultures and that add on to all that discussion and that makes communities so much stronger. I think one of my favorite discussions that I have when I have, you know, when I talk with people who are in fandom as well, is talking about like translations of the Harry Potter books. It sounds kind of like boring, but it's really not. It's super interesting to find out how Harry Potter was translated in your language, what the choices that were made were, why they were made. And it informs so much about the perspective of different people who come from different cultures and different countries. So community building for me is like the number one most compelling thing. It has removed so much of the loneliness and has really helped make writing something that is collective and not just me alone, you know, in my apartment typing away on my computer. The second thing to me 
is the creativity and ability to play in like, in like a sandbox because you don't have to respect canon. You know, canon, who cares? I will remove the epilogue or I will change the sorting right from the beginning. Or you know what? Harry is not actually going to be James and Lee's son. He's going to be James and Regulus's son. These are things that I've seen, some things that I've used. You know, there's just such a variety of things that we can do. And it, again, to me, it's like, it's so fascinating to see the way that people think. What they choose and what sort of people that they are, just, it's fucking amazing. I think it's just brilliant. And so it really helps. And the third and final thing for me is deconstructing and analyzing literature through a new lens. When you do fan fiction, you're creating your own story, but you're basing on something that already exists. So you have to deconstruct the original thing, see what makes it tick, what makes it work, what doesn't make it work, what is so bad about it. Like JKR's world building is shit. It's objectively terrible. But it's a lot easier to see that when you're writing fan fiction. And it's a completely new way to analyze literature. And I find that so, so interesting. And it's such a, a great way to look at works. And that's also been really helpful for me to read other books. Yes, that ability to transfer that deconstruction to other things outside of fan fiction. I love that point so, so much. Thank you so much for bringing that up. When you were talking about that, I got this mental image of this person sitting in front of a radio, you know? So if you think <laughs> of the radio as the fan fiction, you want to know how the radio works. So you take it all apart down to its barest parts, right? And now you have all these parts sitting in front of you and you're analyzing them and you're thinking about how they go together and what they mean. And then your brain starts doing this thing where it goes, well, this, you know, it used to be a radio. But we could probably make something else out of this, too, or put it back together in this new, interesting way that nobody's ever thought of before. And that is kind of what fan fiction writers are doing, right? And I love your point about you really do learn. What's the word I'm looking for? You learn really interesting ways of deconstructing these pieces of literature and analyzing them and putting them into different terms and viewing them from different viewpoints, different perspectives. And every time that you do that, you learn something new. Absolutely. And I think it's so interactive in a way. It's like, I loved my literature classes. I loved analyzing books. I loved it so much, but it can be very difficult for some people to learn that way because it, you're not really putting your hands in the dough. You know what I mean? When you're writing fan fiction and you're forced to deconstruct the source material in order to find what works or what doesn't work or what you want to do with it, it forces you to be involved in the process. And for a lot of people, that's really helpful. It's a new way to learn. And I think there's a beauty to it. I think we should teach people how to write fan fiction in literature class so that we, if anything, just to teach them how to deconstruct and analyze a book. That would be just like really helpful, I think, in a sense. Maybe I'm wrong, yes, but you know. No, and I feel like that's a great point that fan fiction is getting your hands dirty with this process because you're right. It's one thing to sit in a classroom with a bunch of other students who may or may not be engaged, you know, in the material <laughs> and do it that way. That's the way we all did it at school and at university and everything. But it's a completely different thing to get your hands dirty in it and actually put your hands on this material and then do something else with it and transform it into something else. And then you pull the aspect of community on top of that. 
where everybody else is deconstructing it with you and you're all coming to, you know, sometimes it's similar conclusions, sometimes it's different conclusions. I love your point that community allows us to learn and view material in certain perspectives that we would never have come to on our own, especially like you said, with something as vast as Harry Potter. I read through the Harry Potter series one time. Exactly one time. I never went through and did it again. So I am always so grateful for people who can help me out with different perspectives on the Harry Potter canon universe because, you know, A, I won't remember a lot of the little details that happened in canon. And B, sometimes I remember them a completely different way than other people do. And I'm astounded sometimes by the things that people say to me and I'll go, I never even thought of that or I never even thought to see it that way. And it is amazing when you're getting your hands dirty doing this work and adding the element of community on top of that where everybody else is also engaged in this work. There's magic happening there in that process. And I think it's beautiful. Absolutely. Honestly, it's, it's, I think it's one of those things where like, the, there is a lot of negativity in fandom in general. There are a lot of issues as well. But when it all comes together like this, it is such a beautiful moment of humanity. You know, I have a really, really good friend who is, you know, she's in fandom. And one of the things that she, she's left side down, she's an amazing writer, but she is mostly known for all her meta takes and also all her compilations of stats. She loves to do stats on like ships, uh, ratings, and stuff like that. She likes to look at things through analytical lens. It's always very interesting. She has a lot of thoughts about fandom. She listens to a lot of podcasts. She reads a lot of meta. She also produces a lot of it. It's just very interesting. And whenever she comes up, like even when there's just an idea, not even specifically about the books or what's in them, but about fandom in general, like, oh, maybe I feel like maybe this ship would be more like young people, something like that. She comes battling in with receipts, like, let's discuss this. I have all the information and let's just like look at it. And it, it's so beautiful because you completely, even without looking at the canon, even just looking at how the community works, even that inspires discussion. And so you could have endless subjects to discuss and delve into. And I love when she does. I love when she comes directly in with uh, a Tumblr post that she's read. She's also really good at finding Tumblr posts that she saved like ages ago. I think she has a really good tagging system because I don't know how she does it. It's just amazing. Like I, when these discussions happen, when community building is happening, to me, that's the most beautiful part of it. Honestly, if anything else, like if any, everything else was removed, if that was the only thing I would get to keep from fandom, I would be happy. That would be fine. Yes. Yes. Community is everything. And I love hearing stories like that, honestly, because I think it's a wonderful thing that fandom allows the community members to contribute in different ways, different ways that we may not have considered before. We're used to seeing the fan fiction writers and fan artists and things like that. But then there are other people that have these really unique, interesting strengths or abilities or interests. And they can somehow translate those interests into the fandom side of things. And they can contribute and add tremendous value. And it's just beautiful to me that fandom communities are like that. We have the flexibility the flexibility in fandom to utilize our unique talents 
in very interesting ways. So it always makes me so happy when I hear stories like the one you just told about people doing really interesting things and making interesting contributions like meta and, you know, remembering things from different sources that I'm sure add so much value to the community. So that's always really cool. Thank you so much. We're talking about Harry Potter today, obviously, people. Obviously, <laughs> um, which, I, you know, as you've stated, is this vast, huge canon. It always amuses me just a little bit when I think about Harry Potter, because um, Harry Potter was a long time ago. Sometimes I don't like to admit that because it means that uh, we're getting <laughs> old, right? The books were written a long time ago. But I always think it's so interesting that the fandom has persisted in such a insistent way, you know, in the sense that the Harry Potter communities out there are still going so strong. You see fandoms all the time that are strong for a little while and then they die out. But you you really haven't seen that with Harry Potter the way that you sometimes see that with other fandoms. Anyway, one of the things that I really appreciated about your writing here with your fan fiction that we're going to be talking about today is your focus on Hermione Granger. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your background with Harry Potter in general. Like, how did you get into this fandom and all that? And then I want to hear your particular thoughts and perspectives on Hermione Granger specifically, because I want to know what your perspective on Hermione is. Okay, so the Harry Potter fandom... I think what's funny about my story is that, first of all, I actually started reading the books actually quite young, but still later than most of my peers. Because when I was seven, we were at friends uh, of my parents, and they put on the Harry Potter and uh, Chamber of Secrets movie, and it scared me to death. <laughs> and then I didn't want to read the books. I was like seven, and I was easily scared. I actually, I'm a horror writer, and I still uh, can't stomach most horror films. Too gory for me. I know, it's <laughs> it's a whole thing. Anyway. So I started reading them a bit later. I remember all my peers getting like Order of the Phoenix when it got out and I still had read the first book. But I think when I was nine or 10, when I was in school, the library was separated between primary, middle school and high school. And I had to get special authorization from the librarian as a primary school student to go into the middle school because uh, library, because I'd read all the books in the primary school section. I had nothing left to read. So they gave me special authorization and I was they, so vast. A new world was opening to me and I was actually kind of getting scared. Like, what am I going to pick? So I went to the Harry Potter books because I was like, I've heard about this. There's something that I kind of know. There's just everything else is overwhelming. Let me read that. And then the librarian changed as I had finished book four and I was banned again from the middle school section. So I had to get the siblings of my friends who were like the older siblings to smuggle the books for me. The whole thing. You had to get a book plug to help you mule the book out for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Very illegal trade, you know. Like, oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I love um, that story. It, it, it was fucking insane. Like, oh, I'll throw Harry Potter books. So I read five and six. And then I was 11 when book seven came out and my mother got it for me. She bought, she bought me uh, fresh, out of the, fresh out of the bookshop. She got it for me. So I read the seven books. I followed the movies as they came out. I, not the first few ones, but I think starting from Harry Potter 4. Harry Potter 4 on DVD, and then Harry Potter 5, 6, and then 7, 1 and 2 in the theaters. So for me, there was all this, and then there was the reading of the fan fiction. But I wasn't actually involved in fandom in any sort of capacity. 
just for a little bit in 2010, I did join a Facebook group on the French side of the Harry Potter fandom. And the group was actually dedicated to a specific fanfic author. And I did make friends there. And I was on that group maybe for about a year. And so that was my only experience of actual fandom back in the day. And then the first time I officially joined fandom for real was on November 1st, 2021. And I remember the date because I had been writing The Hunt for a while at this point. It was like, I think, April, like seven months-ish. And NaNoWriMo was coming up. And I wanted to write The Hunt during NaNoWriMo. And I was like, I didn't feel, I didn't want to do it on the NaNoWriMo official Discord server that I was on because I didn't feel very comfortable there. So I went on the hunt and I looked for Discord servers that were Harry Potter fanfiction writers. And I was like, I can't believe this is the first time I'm thinking of this. I am 26 and it has never occurred to me before to do that. And I think one of the reasons that all of my fix used to be abandoned was because I was feeling so lonely during the process because I wasn't in fandom and I wasn't involved with other people in the community. So I joined the servers on November 1st because that was the beginning of NaNoWriMo. And I haven't left since. And it has, in fact, I have been able to put out so much writing and I've been so much more consistent in my writing because of my involvement in the community. That's why I have such a huge love full and focus on the community. It's because I know the positive effects that it has had on me. And so I know the positive effect that it's going to have on other people as well. It's just much less isolating. Even though I'm not someone who's very lonely in real life, like I have a good set of friends. I have, you know, a good relationship with my family. You know, I, I get along well with my colleagues at work. So I'm not a lonely person at all. But the process of writing is so difficult. It puts you in a constant state of existential crisis. And so having other people go through that with you is always amazing. So that's how I joined the Harry Potter fandom. And then Hermione Granger, I've had two phases. So phase one was my early, like my girlhood phase around Hermione Granger. There was the fact that she was the only female main character. And I related to her, I think, in a way that a lot of girls have, which was she's nerdy. She's bullied in school. She is considered to be not attractive, not pretty. Like if she puts a lot of effort, you know, she can look pretty, but she doesn't put a lot of focus on her physical appearance. She gets bullied for it. That creates insecurities that she didn't have in her before. And I related to that a lot in middle school, especially. So that was, that was phase one of like relating to Hermione was my first appreciation of her. I had a second phase of appreciating Hermione in adulthood, which is completely different. It's for me now, Hermione, the reason I love her so much, there's still the fact that she's the only female main character because I prefer writing women in general. That has always been the case. But the second thing is her being such a great character. She is so fascinating to me. So in inspiration for this uh, podcast, I've been like going through what are the canon events about this already? I know there's a few because I want to explain her great character because I'm so passionate about it. And it's such a huge part of how I write Hermione and pretty much everything that I write her in. She is a great character. And that's because of that adult appreciation that I've had of her that I didn't have when I was younger. So in canon... There's so many things that she does, but I think five key events that stick out to me are when she lights Snape's robe on fire at age 11, when she puts Rita Skeeter in a jar and blackmails her, when she creates Dumbledore's army and then puts a spell 
on the sign-up sheet, she gives a very vague warning about not snitching, but doesn't actually explain what happens. And then uh, Marietta, who snitches on them, gets purple boils all over her face. Permanent. There's the umbrage thing, which for me is actually literally not even great. It's dark. Like, umbrage getting taken away by the centaurs due to Hermione's ruse is next level dark. Because, I mean, when I first read the books, it was like, okay, she gets trampled on. Now, as an adult, I'm like, okay, knowing the myth about centaurs, it's like even worse than that. Oh, and then, oh my God. <laughs> like, it's true, but it's, it's fucking dark. Like, it's really dark. And it, like, you can't say Hermione is a goody two-shoes. Not when she does crap like this. She's not a goody two-shoes. And the final thing, I think, is her not telling Harry about his upcoming death in Deathly Hollows, even though she figures it out way before he sees Snape's memories. And the reason for that, I think, because you can look at it two different ways. Either she doesn't tell Harry in order to protect him and his feelings, in which case it's detrimental to the mission that they're on. And that's great in its own kind of way. Or she doesn't tell him in order to preserve the mission that they're on to keep the Horcrux hunt going until the very end. And she basically sacrifices her friend in doing that, which is understandable in the context, but still a great thing to do. It's so overall, Hermione is a great character, but there is also the thing, and I think the canon just does not focus enough on this. She is muggle-born. She's in fact the only one of her friends who is muggle-born, and the only few muggle-born characters that we learn about in the books are in Chamber's Secrets, because they're relevant to the plot, otherwise they don't really exist, and Harry's mother. But everyone else seems to be some sort of half-blood of pure blood, and no one really ever focuses, like the canon never really focuses on Hermione's very specific case of being muggle-born. It does touch on it, but I don't think it goes very deep on that subject. So there's this combination of her having a real cause to fight for because there's literally extermination and genocide at stake. And at the same time, so having to be put in this position and then having to make all these choices and these choices that in appearance she makes for her friend, right? She snapes robes to save Harry. Rita Skeeter went after everyone basically that she loves, Harry and Hagrid and even herself. Marietta, you know, was on the entire group. Umbridge was like to save them, but also specifically to save Harry from torture was what she was doing, right? He was going to get tortured by uh, the Cruciatus curse in Umbridge's office, right? So on surface level, she does all that for Harry, but I think a part of her also does it for herself. She's faced with, I think there's a really interesting dynamic that I think was completely incidental and completely accidental by J.K. Rowling to have this girl setting fire literally to the authority figures the adult authority figures that wrong her because snape is cruel to her umbridge is particularly cruel to her rita goes after her more than she goes after anybody in book four all these people are genuinely terrible adult figures and hermione just blasts them and goes at it just so violently but in a way no one sees her like that. I have read so many fics where Hermione is a goody two-shoes and she's nothing more than that. She respects the law. Yes. I was just going to say that that has been very much my own reading experience so far with Hermione Granger. In most stories, that's how she's interpreted. And in my mind, I think that's how she was always interpreted. I'm loving this conversation. 
this is kind of subverting everything I thought about Hermione Granger up to this point. And the thing is, like, I literally, I don't think that fanfic authors are not able to see her as great. I think it's because there is such, everything that she does is so justified in like a comic justice way that it, it makes you feel like she's still a goody two shoes, even when she's really not. And I find that fascinating. I also still think it was accidental. I don't think that J.K. Rowling, you know, set out to do any of this. Hermione is herself insert, supposedly. So I don't think that she set out to do this. But through all these accidental things, where she has to have someone do the deed, and so she's just going to put Hermione there because Hermione's smart is really what it is. Really, what you get down to it and you deconstruct the character, it is so fascinating how layered and great she is. And that, that was my face too. As an adult, my interest in Hermione was driven by that. I love that you set that up for us as we're getting ready to talk about the hunt specifically, because that's what I noticed the most when I was reading the hunt was how morally gray Hermione is in this fic and how layered she is as a human being in this fic. And I thought, I'm not sure I've seen this Hermione Granger before. This is amazing. And I am absolutely here for it. The final thing about Hermione Granger, and I think the one thing that really influences a lot of how she is portrayed in pop fiction, is the choices they made in the films. The scriptwriters have been very honest about this in interviews. They said she was their favorite character. So they, they gave her a lot of Ron's moments. They made her picture perfect. Of course, it didn't help that I think Emma Watson is very beautiful, I think, in a way that Hermione is not. And obviously, you know, they couldn't really uh, know that when she was a child. J.K. Rowling didn't make a comment about this, but like, it's not her fault. Like, she didn't do anything wrong, but I think it, unfortunately, even though she is a great choice for the casting and I absolutely adore her, I think it added indirectly to the choices that were made by the scriptwriters to not only remove a lot of her greatness, but also give Ron's moments to her because that there's that one moment in book two when she's first called A Mud Blood that she doesn't understand. She doesn't know. She has grown up in an entirely different world and culture. She's never heard that before. And Ron has to explain it to her. So the way that it works psychologically for her to find out about this discrimination, for it to be given to her in a way that she could never understand because that's the first time she's experiencing it and she has to be it has to be explained to her as the victim is very different from film where once that slur is uttered what she's called him up blood by draco she's crying she explains to harry what it means because she already knows so we don't get to see that pivotal moment in her character development where she finds out what it is and she is forced to confront this head-on without prior knowledge and she as the victim of this and a lot of that a lot of that i think contributes to the sort of image that we have of her it's not and I mean, it's fine to write Hermione differently from canon. I would never, I don't tell people to stick to canon. I really don't care either way. Break it down, smash it to pieces. But unfortunately, I think it does a disservice to her as a, a character to have that removed in the films at the very least, which are supposed to be at the very, you know, canon material in a way. And it has done a disservice to her in general uh, and to other female characters as well. Even though, and I will say this, due to the luck that we have to have such a big community and have so many writers there are so many people who are going to write female characters and who are going to write Hermione in a variety of different ways and that's great 
But I also think, unfortunately, maybe not enough or not as much that could have been if she had been portrayed accurately in the films. Yes, yes. I think that that's so interesting that you say that because, you know, I stated previously that I only read through the actual Harry Potter books one time all the way through. And so my interaction with Harry Potter afterwards, with canon material at least, was with the films, right? Anytime I get that Harry Potter itch, I just go back to the films and I watch them. And that's so interesting. I had never considered that before, that the portrayal of the Hermione Granger character is different in the films than what you would see in canon with the books. And that's just one more reason why I'm so grateful for fan fiction and the concept of fan fiction, because uh, we do get to explore those things. our writing and we can do whatever we want with them. And it really helps us to get to know these characters on this really deep, interesting psychological level that I don't think we would get any other way. I certainly experienced that reading your fan fiction, The Hunt. I don't get the pleasure of reading very many Hermione-centric fan fiction sometimes with Harry Potter. So anytime I get that opportunity, it's always so appreciated especially with The Hunt, because more than anything, I felt like you put so many layers to Hermione Granger as a individual. So before we go into all of that minutia, let's go ahead and set this up a little bit. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about where your idea for this story came from, and then maybe just give us a little synopsis on what the story is about. Absolutely. So I think maybe maybe I should start with the synopsis just because it, it would explain, it would be easier to explain the process of how I came to it. So the very basic story of the hunt is I moved the timeline to the 17th century while keeping all of canon events, you know, more or less the same. And so right after Voldemort's death, we see that there's a new despot that has risen to power who has created or who has unleashed, we're not very sure where it came, comes from originally, a creature called the Terror. And the terror hunts down muggle-borns through the scent of their blood, finds them, and kills them. And Hermione, we arrive in the, at the very beginning. We don't really know where she's been for the past few years, but she is alone. She is on the run, and she is the Hunt's next victim. She finds out through a character called Domitia Peverell, who's an original character in the story, that the Hunt cannot kill purebloods without dying. And she tricks Draco and Theo, who seem to be on the run and who she encounters along the way, she tricks them into creating an unbreakable vow with her in order to protect her. That way, if she is killed, then one of them dies. Draco is the one who makes the the vow with her. And so if he dies indirectly at the hand of the terror, then the terror disappears. So she, her thought process is, even if I die, then I will put an end to this. Uh, that's the very basic plot. There's a lot more that goes into it. For me, that, that has always been clear in my mind that the death of Voldemort does not mean the end of Muggleborn discrimination. It just doesn't. That's the very basic. That's an idea that I already had before. That's something that I've read in other fan fiction. It's nothing new, but that was where I wanted to start with. The reason that I wanted to write this story specifically is I didn't want just to have general discrimination like at the ministry or or things like this is because the level of violence that Voldemort has risen to and the level of genocide that is put in place by book seven it means that it creates enough political instability behind that someone another despot could come in and escalate that violence even further that was the starting point for me then I had to conceive the terror 
there's going to be spoilers in this for chapter 11. I will go into more detail in the later chapters. Chapter 11 is being the last one that's preceded at this time. But the terror is created. So the idea for me, I wanted to create, because I didn't want the idea that Muggleborns are fundamentally different in their biology from purebloods. But it needs to be believed by the general population in order to ensure the continued violence against Muggleborns. So the terror is made and the terror is given this image publicly that it can find Muggleborns through their scent. So when I crafted the terror, I had this first idea of this is what it can do. But I also want to make sure that I don't go into that direction of Muggleborns are fundamentally biologically different because they're not. So this is propaganda. And there is a twist. So we find out in chapter 11, for well, 10 first chapters, we genuinely believe that's how it works. That no. And this is why there are so many inconsistencies with the terror throughout the story. Like it only hunts one person at a time. There's a wanted poster with each person that's hunting. So why is it only going after one person at a time? Why does Colin Creevy die by fire in the, the end of the very first chapter? That's right at the beginning. All of this comes together when we finally reach the conclusion, okay, no, this creature was made and this creature was given a purpose and it was given the tools to accomplish that purpose. But the tools that actually exist are not the ones that are being told to the public. The form of propaganda, it's a lie talk to the public in order to maintain order and control. So that was my first thought. And then I had to choose the setting. And I didn't want to go into the 90s right after the war for several reasons. I chose the 17th century because the 17th century in England is a famous time of political instability. It's also a time where modern political philosophy was conceived. And the reason for this being the many wars that were happening at the time and the constant instability. Uh, you know, one century earlier in the middle of the 16th century, Thomas Small is the first man to use the word utopia. He writes a book called Utopia, where he designs the sort of like perfect society, this ideal society, which is usually, you know, there's a lot of debate on what this was a response to exactly from Thomas Small. He was a lawyer. And we don't really know, but it was probably a response to something religious, social, political. And then one century later, you have Thomas Hobbes writing Leviathan. And he writes Leviathan because he's, he spent time in France. He spent time in England. He's seen the 30-year war and then the English Civil War that ended in 1651. So he writes a book that says the despot is basically the secular king is like the best sort of ruler that you can have. And that leads to the most stability. And that creates the idea of the social contract. And so all of this, for me, was an amazing background to have. It also had the additional benefit of removing technology. A lot of muggle technology that Hermione could have used that would have made her disappearance far easier than it is, in fact. When it's in the 17th century, she doesn't have access to a train, doesn't have access to a phone, she doesn't have access to any of that. So that was also me for plot convenience. It was also for the aesthetic. I wanted something very gritty and dark. It was also for the political setting. I actually had an entire plot line that was a parallel to the instability in the Mughal world that I ended up removing, but that was originally the choice for the setting. And then there was also reconceiving the classes. So in canon, you had basically the purebloods that are all assumed to be sort of aristocratic, then the half-bloods, and then the Muggle-borns. And it's not very 
it's kind of muddled. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So what I wanted to do with the hunt by moving the timeline was, first of all, you do have less of the population at the time, early 17th century. England and Wales was a total of about 4 million people. Nowadays, the entire UK is about 67 million. So including Northern Ireland and, uh, and Scotland, but I couldn't find numbers to compare exactly the two territories. But we can still see that it's a huge difference, 4 million between 67 million. So less people, but also implied in the book that there were more wizards or more purebloods at the time. There was just a lot more of them. So that helped me create these classes where I had, yes, the aristocratic purebloods like Draco Malfoy, they do exist, but you also have the purebloods who are poor and who are farmers and villagers and who are oppressed by the government, but also led to believe that muggle-borns are the source of their problems because they become very relevant to the political plot of it all. And then the half-bloods who exist in this sort of half-state because usually they are fathered by a rich pureblood and then maybe a muggle-born servant and so they exist in this half state as well where they put in a position so like bust at the time couldn't inherit a title so it's kind of the same thing i kind of muddled a lot of of, uh, of history there but i was like since the withering world it's so insular and separate from the muggle world I'm, i have this creativity i don't have to stick to the social norms and social classes of the 17th century exactly and i can kind of do what i want with it so just to that to say that I was I wanted to conceive this very political story. I wanted to set it in a time where it made sense, even if I ended up not using a lot of, of what initially made this happen. And I wanted to really explore this idea of the discrimination against smuggle bones at a really heightened level, while also making it more realistic and less simplistic than it was originally in the books. Yes. No, I love that that decision was made. I love that you thought that out so carefully and made that decision initially. As I was starting out to read the story, I loved it just because of the gritty vibe that you were talking about earlier, right? Because I knew going into this, you had talked to me about this and you said, well, this is kind of a Lovecraftian horror, you know, survival kind of fic. And I thought, oh, great. I love stuff like that. So I go in there and that's the instant vibe that hits you in the face when you first get into that first chapter. And I was like, I love this. The vibe is so here, right? But then as you progress through the story and you start getting involved in these little plot points, you realize a lot of the things that you were talking about just now with the you know class casts and all of the different political things happening. And I can absolutely see why moving things back in the timeline <laughs> for AU purposes, of course, was necessary for some of these plot points to be realistic and for you to even be able to use them. I was so fascinated by the pure blood, poor class, you know, the farming class, right? The conversations that are happening in these taverns by these people when they're talking about mudbloods, absolutely freaking fascinating. I was like, I have seen this before. I was more comparing it to American history because that's where I got my university degree was in American history. But a lot of the same, you know, issues apply. So it was very, very fascinating and so interesting. So kudos for that because it definitely works on lots of different levels. And uh, as I stated, you do love writing horror, right? Horror, philosophical genre. You describe this as kind of a, a Lovecraftian horror story. I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about these themes. Why horror? What different kinds of themes were you exploring here? All of that. I'm just so curious to, to kind of hear your perspective 
on what's being explored here besides the political stuff? Okay, so I love horror in, in general because I think it's a it's a genre that is I think it's underestimated a lot as being oh it's appealing to the like the base feelings of fear. So it's very simplistic, which I think is a hugely reductive of, of what the genre can do because yes, it does appeal to some of your baser feelings like instinctive fear, primal, all that all that stuff that's like really deep. But it's because it's so deep that, you know, reaching to it really allows to remove layers and kind of go to psychological understandings that we might not with other genres. And each genre has its own qualities. But horror has this very, I think, this ability to appeal to the base of feelings while also exploring very fine and complicated things. This is why it shows social horror. Social horror as a genre is to take something that is real it's a social problem. It can be pretty much anything and amplifying it to the max. So obviously this is Harry Potter fan fiction. So I chose the question of Muggleborns. Had I written original fiction, you know, I would have chosen any of these social, many social issues that we're facing today. That would have been what I would have done. I don't like using Harry Potter as an analogy for real political issues. I think that it, it tends to water them down a lot. So I don't want to say that this was a parallel to real things that are happening in the world. However, I did use my knowledge of how things function socially to add realism to the horrors that happen in the story. So this is social horror simply because it amplifies to a huge level the things that happen the discrimination, of course, because we have, yes, the terror that, that actually tracks down very specific muggle-borns, usually people who are considered to be sort of like enemies of the ministry, so people who are part of the Order of the Phoenix, etc. And then everyone else who is caught is, is made a slave. And that's really important because it lets them know, oh, the terror exists. Basically, if you try to escape, if you try to do anything, that's what's going to get to you. So you might as well just stay in your position. So it's a, another way to force people into submission and to keep that momentum going. Then Lovecraft and Horror, is a, it has many definitions. Lovecraft and Horror is really, it's like kind of an existential dread, like realizing that, you know, nature is above us, that the cosmos is above us. And it can be different things. I think uh, Lovecraft and Horror is just like actually many definitions. I, I picked out a few when I started writing. And those that are very interesting to me was the fact that like human interests and desires and laws and morality have no meaning or significance in the universe. And that's something that we don't really get to as much at this stage of the story. That's something that's going to happen later with the Devil's Pact that Draco and Sia want to enact, which is the other main plot thread of this. Then there is the fusion of horror and science, which is through the creation of terror. We usually qualify a Lovecraftian monster as one that doesn't speak. It's like the large unknown. It's the unknowable. It's like invincible. And so the terror was conceived in two phases. First, it's a Lovecraftian monster because we only hear about it. We don't ever see it. We mostly think that it's invincible except for this one quirk that it has that if it kills a pure blood, then, you know. That's the end of it. And it evolves. So at this point of the story, I don't want to spoil the next chapters, but I think I might have to a little bit. Starting in chapter 12, we find out that the terror can kill your bloods, but we don't know why yet. And there's a reason for this. It's going to be explained. There are certain pure bloods that it can kill and certain pure bloods that it cannot kill without self-destroying. 
And those are all whole reasons for this. So the concept was to start with this. So this, the entire cosmic thing is really through these themes specifically. And the reason for this is like, I didn't want something that could, like the story, I've already put this in the tags, has an open, ambiguous ending. I'm not going to end it with, it's horror, it doesn't have a happy ending, not everyone is happy and married and all that. That's the genre. And I also want to end the story with a very real sense of dread. I know exactly how it's ending. I already have that planned out for two years now. It ends with an entire sense of dread. And because I want the reader to put down their phone or their Kindle or the printed version or whatever it is they're reading on. And I want them to cry about existence. I'm sorry for saying this. But I want them to be like, life is meaningless and I'm going to cry now. And then wake up the next day and they appreciate everything because it's like well you know I might as well enjoy this and I realize it sounds sadistic but to me it's a catharsis I love writing for a catharsis and so horror is one of the ways for me to do that it's using all these base of feelings and going into all these themes the political philosophy is the main thing that that doesn't appear quite as strongly in the story because I removed a lot of those plot threads when I was outlining but that was also, you know, in that. It's just like a combination of different things that interest me, I think, to craft this very anxiety-inducing world up until the very end. But I think it helps for some people, not for everyone, but I think the people who choose to read that sort of stuff, and it is tagged, I think, pretty much appropriately, so you know what you're getting into. I think it helps them relieve, actually, a lot of the a lot of anxiety. And also, sometimes it creates more, but in a way that's positive. It's, it's catharsis, really. I sound like I say this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I was just about to say that I'm so glad that you brought those tags up because I was going to bring those tags up. I'll be honest, when I first dove into this, I did not notice that tag right away. It took me a little bit of time with this story before I finally flipped my eyes up enough times to the tags and finally noticed that one. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I happen to be the type of person that finds a lot of beauty in the darkness. I love reading dark things. And so it doesn't bother me at all, but I find it interesting. Obviously, I talk to a lot of other people <laughs> that read fan fiction quite a bit. And I have noticed this, I don't know, maybe it's just the people that I'm talking to or whatever, but there seems to almost be this insistent preference for happy things and happy endings. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with happy things and happy endings. I read stories with that shit all the time and I love it. But I do think it's so interesting, the decision to focus a story on the horror aspect, on the nihilism aspect, right? On the this may not have a happy ending y'all aspect, <laughs> right? And uh, to trust the readers enough to know what they're getting into and still choose to take that journey with you. I think it's great. Like I said, I find a lot of beauty in the darkness. I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, when you get into the nihilistic stuff, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for people to make their own meaning if they wish to, if they wish to. A lot of people don't. A lot of people find comfort in the fact that nothing means anything, you know, and that's valid, too. <laughs> I'm actually not even a, I'm not even a nihilist. Like, people look at me and they don't think horror writer. Like, I didn't choose the nickname Bobby for no reason. Like, people look at me and the way that I look physically, the way that I present myself, the way that I talk, 
everyone describes me as like a sunshine. And like, I'm obviously I have my moments. I complain. I, I can, you know, I can be mean. Everyone has their moments, but in general, people find me to be, you know, like always happy and optimistic, which wasn't the case when I was younger. I was a very sullen and sad teenager. But anyway, I'm like this sort of sunshine, but I haven't, and it's evolved into this. It's, it's taken me a lot of therapy to kind of get into this sort of a, a very positive, to be the sort of positive person. But the one thing that, that hasn't left me is, I'm sort of the cliche of like the, you see these memes of girls who are like dressed all in pink and who are just like very cute and, and into cute things. And then they listen to like metal. <laughs> it's kind of like that for me, except it's not the metal that I'm listening to. It's the metal that I'm writing, I guess is the best way to put it. For me, the writing process is what helps drain the horrors inside of me so that I can be the positive kind of person that I am in real life with other people. I was such an angry child. I was an angry teenager. I was angry in my early 20s. I was always so, so mad at the world and everyone around me and myself. And it's draining to be around people like this. I know because I couldn't stand being around myself. And my parents would just like, didn't know how to handle me. And so I use the horror. I use like all the sad endings. I write a lot of sad endings. The only happy ending fic that is currently on my profile. I mean, now there's a couple crack fics that do end happily, kind of. The only real happy ending is the story between two serial killers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so there's this, to me, uh, all the sad and the nitty gritty and the, it's like, I'm letting out the darkness and I'm containing it in a way that I choose and I'm not forcing it on people through my actions. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of people sort of relate to that. There's a lot of people who write the fluff for the escapism and I get it. I totally get it. I get why you would do that. It makes sense to me and I'm definitely not judging it. But to me, writing fluff is anxiety inducing. I don't like it. So I can't do it. It's like, I can only be a happy person because I'm removing the bad shit by putting it into very sad stories. Yes, exorcising it out of your body. And uh, art, creative expression allows us to do that. I think that's one of the most magical things about creative expression is just our ability to take those things, right, that are inside and acknowledging them in a healthy way, right? That doesn't hurt anybody. Um, it goes back to that cathartic element that you were discussing yeah, earlier, exactly. you know? Not only can it be the cathartic experience for the reader, but absolutely it's cathartic for you as the writer, which I think is just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I think it works on both sides. One of the things that I loved the most about this story was... Um, Obviously, watching Hermione was perfect. I loved that this story has that element of the outside terror, right? Something outside of herself, this darkness that's chasing her, right? And trying to kill her. And that's scary and frightening and, you know, mysterious and all of that. But then you have this added element of the noxious potion yeah. messing with Hermione's psyche as well. So, in this way, she is also becoming the monster yeah. that she fears so much. And you cannot run away from yourself. You can run away from the terror all you want and try to escape, but you cannot run from yourself. And that to me was like more scary 
then the terror for some reason because I was like, she's turning into a monster. I am so oh my glad God. that you brought that up because it was in my notes when I was discussing the Lovecraft and horror. And then I went in so many directions, I completely forgot about it. But it is a central, as it was one of the, the Lovecraft and horror elements because some of like Lovecraft and horror is obviously many things, but usually it's the kind of horror that's inescapable. And that is inescapable by definition. The Noctis potion, of course, uh, is really important to that that development of hers and what will bring us to the end. Uh, but what really happens, what has happened so far in the story that we know that establishes what is going to happen at the end uh, is her seeing the effect that it has on Ron and how it would have killed him eventually if he hadn't been killed by something else. So she knows what's coming for her and she will have to make decisions based on that. That will be the very final thread like what happens if she does get rid of all the external pressures that are on her and then what happens at the very end so i'm not going to spoil the rest of the story for our listeners out there if anyone is interested in checking it out but all of this will be explored and that's the final thread of lovecraft and horror that i wanted to incorporate in this story and that i will be addressing uh, towards the end oh and that's so exciting to me because one of the things that i really loved was exploring, hmm, how do I put this? It was watching Hermione and exploring her feelings around the choices that she's had to make because she has to make choices in the story. And then in the story, she's also thinking back on the decisions that she's made in the past. And she seems so tortured sometimes by some of these decisions because some of them were very difficult to make and some of them were in that very morally gray area that you were talking about before. Even the decision to use Noxious in the first place, she talks about that decision and wonders all the time, did I make a bad call here? Did I make the wrong decision? It almost surprised me when I read that because I was like, oh, wow, Hermione, I didn't know you were capable of making a decision like this. Ron gave it to her unknowingly. She doesn't actually make that choice. True. But wasn't she the one that was sort of advocating for the use of it? No, she was advocating. No. So <laughs> Ron is the one who gives it to the pure blood, the poor pure bloods who fight by their side. He says he is justifying. So they both have a sense. They're opposing. So there's a triangle. Harry is against the violence, point blank. He doesn't want any of it. Ron advocates for a form of violence that goes against what Hermione wants. Hermione wants to create alliances with the purebloods, even those who hate her. She's the one who is going to those villages, putting herself at risk to tell them, well, yeah, but this guy is also your enemy. He's putting quotas on the amount of magical crops that you're allowed to create. Well, this is the pan-European famine. So there's very little food to be produced already. And the fact that there's quotas on how much magical crops they can create based on what they have puts a dent in their finances and, and creates an inescapable situation for them. Ron is against that from the offset because Ron sees himself as a different pure blood and he doesn't want to be affiliated with those who hate Muggleborns. And he doesn't seem to understand Hermione's position as a Muggleborn. This is really important for her to be faced with people who do not understand her situation and who still want to make decisions based on what they think is best for her kind, even though they are not part of it. So Ron does, and Ron being so against what Hermione does, not only takes the noxious potion, but also gives it to these four purebloods fighting by their side and makes them 
these the creates these monsters from them. And Hermione is very much against that. She is for violence, but she wants to do it differently, and she doesn't want to do it in a way that removes agency from anyone because she knows what it's like to have her agency removed from her entirely all the time, especially from the Order of the Phoenix, supposedly by her side, wants to remove her agency. They specifically don't give her a military rank when they create the ranks in the Order of the Phoenix, the renewed Order of the Phoenix after Voldemort's death. They don't give her a rank. They don't acknowledge her. She doesn't exist. And she is put in these menial tasks and she puts herself in danger constantly to create alliances. So Ron does that and he is so angry with her. He, he wants her to be more like him that he, under the influence of the noxious that he's been ingesting himself and that influences his decision making, he gives her that and she realizes very late in the game that she has already ingested too much and that explains her outbursts of violence that she never could never explain before and the way that she's killed you know nine people in chapter two and she's like sitting with that decision because really the crux of the issue with the noxious for Hermione in her mind is I've been influenced to do this by potion but I've also made these choices and I've also advocated for violence before so is it really that different than what I was advocating for? Yes, that's where my confusion in my brain was going, because I could remember these moments of her sitting there and thinking very carefully about past choices and going, uh, you know, is this a result of or a product of this, you know, foreign substance that has entered into my system? Am I just like this? Did I make poor decisions? Like, am I a monster without noxious? Like, I don't know. You know, and it was this very like crazy, interesting, compelling thing to kind of go down that path with her and ask those same questions and be like, I don't know. That's so interesting. And she kind of has to wrestle with that. And I loved that because there was horror in that, at least for me, as I was reading it going, oh, wow, like, wow, <laughs> I really like this. This is really good. That is part of, a, of the horror, certainly, in this. She also makes conscious decisions that are not influenced by this potion, like when she tricks Draco into making that deal with her, basically, will die for me. That's something that she wrestles with because he is technically her enemy, but he is also the only one who's looking out for her throughout this entire story, and she never really knows why. And I've heard readers assume, oh, he's in love with her, he's always been in love with her, which is a very common trope in, in, in Dramione 6. Uh, that's not where I'm going. <laughs> that's definitely not the direction I'm going. This is not a love story, you guys. He is not secretly pining for her. There are just there are more things at play. Uh, it's a story of guilt as well. And she's like, she's manipulating this person that very clearly doesn't hate her at this point in time. She doesn't know why, and she doesn't know why he defends her, but she's manipulating him several times throughout the story. And she has to wrestle with that. Like, yes, he hurt me as a kid, but does it justify the amount of things that I'm putting him through? And that result at the end, you know, at the end of chapter 10, he's like basically dying already. And she doesn't know that there's obviously there's something else at play that's not her fault. But she encourages him in directions where he knows he's putting himself at harm. And she has to wrestle with that as well. He knows he's putting himself at harm. But because she's the one asking him to do it, he will do it. And in that sense, isn't that harm caused by her? Or is it caused by him? Because it's something else that's directly causing him harm. So she's put in that position of having to think about that. But then on the other hand, she's like, well, like, he's a pure blood. He's protected. He's working with Gaunt anyway. Um, and there's, you know, the whole plot thread with Narcissa that has played into that. 
it's like, well, he's sort of the enemy. So is it okay that I'm hurting the enemy in the sense to protect the defenseless? But also, he's not really the enemy. He's my ally, personally speaking, you know? And there's this, this confrontation of, of things. But in the end, you know, it's all for survival. And so she has to question the price of the survival. How much am I going to pay for this? Yes, yes. And I loved that. I loved that you put her in these impossible situations. I feel like a lot of us in our modern society here, you know, maybe it's difficult for us to imagine what it might be like to be put in such impossible situations where we are forced to confront choices that might, I don't know, like make us question ourselves, our own sense of morality. I have always been of the opinion that none of us really knows what we would do in such impossible, desperate circumstances until we are actually in those impossible, desperate circumstances. I love the practice of, I don't know, theorizing what one might do. My brother and I used to have those conversations. What would we do, you know? But I have always just believed that nobody really knows until we're put there. And so this is kind of an exercise in exploring that with Hermione. What will she do as she's put in these impossible, desperate circumstances where the choices are, in a sense, very limited? I loved that. Yes, I loved that. I also loved, and I feel like you did do this on purpose, and I love it, a lot of these chapters end on cliffhangers. As a reader, that's horrifying, you know, because you're just like, what is going to happen next? Um, so I feel like that was on purpose. And I just want to give you kudos for that because that's brilliant. Oh, yeah, I do that. I, I think that it's pretty much the only way I know how to function uh, in general. I did it on purpose, but I think at this point, it's just a habit. <laughs> I can't do it any other way. Um, <laughs> like I, I just, you know, I, I do take some a bit of a sick pleasure in, in hurting my readers and torturing them. Obviously not in ways like I'm not going to like avoid a trigger warning or something like that. Like not not that kind of stuff, you know, like they know what they're heading in to, but still put little surprises along the way that at the very least, you know, they're like, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you, Bobby. And when I get a comment that says, fuck you, I love those. I've received some of them. And when these, especially when it's people that I don't know, sometimes my friends, you know, comment and obviously they know me. Yeah, They know yeah. that insult is my uh, highest form of praise. I insult people that I love. I tell them, fuck you. I don't tell fuck you to a random person, even if I don't like them. I will only say fuck you to my friends. So when I get these really random readers who do not know me and who get in my comments and tell me, fuck you, I'm so happy. <laughs> I could cry. <laughs> it's the highest form of flattery. <laughs> highest form of flattery. When they hate me, it's when I'm at my happiest. And that's the thing I do with cliffhangers because I obviously wouldn't want to put anyone in a distressing situation. I do remember the days of fanfiction.net, you know, doesn't have a tagging system. So you read a fic, you know, based on the very little tagging information that you have. And all of a sudden, a writer is going to pull out a horrible twist and add, you know, very horrible things in there that are triggering and that put you in a, a genuinely mentally distressing state. That's not something that I would ever want to do. And I make sure that I tag everything appropriately. And if I'm not, I'm going to be choosing creator, choose not to warn so that you still know that you might be faced with any of those warnings, you know, down the line. You might. So you know what you're going into at the very least, you know, you have a sense of that. 
But there are ways to play with your reader's emotions that doesn't profoundly traumatize them, but that still gets a little kick, you know, for me, a little kick of sadism. Yes. <laughs> That was absolutely the experience for me. I love being messed with. You know, I tell people all the time, I don't really have any triggers or squicks or anything like that. So anything goes for me. I enjoyed being messed with in this fic. Honestly, I noticed right away like, oh, all of these are ending in cliffhangers. That's so awesome. It was so much fun. I wanted to ask you really quick about Orpheus and Eurydice. You reference this <laughs> several times during this fic. So not only do you have, you know, Lovecraftian horror and the philosophical social aspects of the story, but then you also kind of drop in different mythic legends from different sources. And one of those is Orpheus and Eurydice. And I was kind of hoping that you could just tell us a little bit about why you chose to incorporate that in this fan fiction. I'm someone who loves myths, uh, not just Greek myth. I do use them more because I know them better, uh, because I have studied them, but I generally love myth from everyone, anywhere in the world. Ex Nilo is one of those fics where I use, actually used uh, myth from other cultures in order to sort of introduce concepts. And But Greek myths uh, come easy to me just because I know them. And I really, I do incorporate a lot of themes of religion in the story. And obviously, ancient Greek religion is very different from Christianity, but I wanted to create a story where both kind of meet. So Orpheus, the reason that I, I created this artifact, right? Orpheus' string. It's kind of embarrassing right now because I can't remember exactly what it does. I remember that she needed to bind herself to Malfoy with it. An eternal bond type of thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. So Orpheus' string is an ancient artifact. And whoever owns it, whoever binds themselves to another person, it's based on the myth, right? Orpheus goes to seek Eurydice down in the underworld he will be allowed to bring her back as long as he doesn't look behind if he looks behind at any point before they're completely out of it then she goes right back to the underworld and of course it's a cautionary tale about that because he does end up looking back and she is trapped right back in and that's the basic story right so the reason i do this the string is sort of this emblem right she when she binds herself Draco, it's like Orpheus and Eurydice being bound together. And they use that to make the unbreakable vow. This is what they use because it allows them to not have a third party making the vow. It was a little bit of plot convenience because Theo wasn't supposed to know about it until after the fact. But it was also a reference to the general story where basically Hermione is Eurydice in this and Draco is Orpheus. And not very much in a romantic sense because even though yes there are ships in this story it is very much much more general fiction than it is uh, ship fiction like there are ships in there but they're peripheral to the story and they're integral to the plot more than the plot is integral to the ship you know what i mean but he is linked he is supposed to take her out of hell in a sense but the thing is it's not it's not i'm not going to be using the looking back sort of premise because i'm going to flip the narrative and, and I'm already starting to flip it at this point at chapter 11 being posted where Hermione is the one who is not supposed to look back. And it's going to be obviously not literally looking back. I'm not going to spoil what's going to happen, but it is going to be an integral part of the story where we flip the narrative where Hermione achieves a position of power that she hasn't had before. And this is the first time she has power. And all this time she's been grappling with decisions. She's always been making, I, won't, I don't want to say the wrong choice because... 
you know, it's a rock and a hard place. She never really has the best choice to make. It's impossible for her to make the perfect choice. There is no perfect choice. In every situation, someone gets hurt. And it's for her to determine who is going to get hurt and why they should get hurt. I use a lot of philosophy. This is the trolley problem. You've probably heard of it. I don't know if you've heard about the trolley problem. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you choose between killing five people or one person. And like, for, I thought The Good Place, the show did a really good job with that. Like, what if you know the one person? What if, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this constant trolley problem that she's on. And so when she achieves power and when she has more room to make choices, is she still going to make choices that hurt people? Is really going to be the question that's going to come up. That was one of the reasons that I chose this myth because Orpheus looks back for himself and he forsakes Eurydice because he made the choice. Even though all the power is in his hand, he chooses to look back and he forsakes her like that. When in fact, he could very much, but at the same time, that decision is puppeteered by Hades, who is a, you know, the god of the underworld. You know, there are various interpretations on Hades and especially Hades and Persephone. So he can be looked at as being bad or, you know, good or kind of somewhere in the between. I think he's sort of chaotic neutral, really, is what Hades is based on, on the multiple interpretations that have occurred over history. And his depiction of as evil is more like Satan. It's been influenced by Christianity. But anyway, so that decision is being puppeted by this god that is very much chaotic. So did Orpheus really have a choice? So it's going to be like, it's going to be this, these sorts of layers. How much power does she have? Is she going to keep making these choices that her other people or not? Why not? And how much freedom does she have in this? And how much free will does she really have in those situations? And that's all going to be explored. And that's why I chose this myth uh, specifically. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that that's why. I was telling you before recording that I explored this myth again, just to refresh myself on what it was. And I was noticing how there's so many different versions of this story, right? And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So many versions. But in all of them, Orpheus looks back. And I remember thinking to myself, that seems so significant to me, like such a significant part of this particular myth that I hope that somehow that looking back gets incorporated into this story somehow. So I am overjoyed to hear that it is something that you're thinking about and planning on incorporating into this story, especially in the context of Hermione, like you said, being put in these impossible trolley situations. And what do you do? And who are you when you're in that situation? You know, I think that's always such a fascinating thing to ask. Who are you when you're in those situations? A lot of us will never really know (laughs) until we're there, you know? Now, I know that we're running out of time here, but I did want to ask you, you have, I think it's 11 chapters now that you've posted for this story so far. So looking back on all of the work you've done for The Hunt, is there a particular like line or scene from this fic that you're the most proud of so far? I think it's really great that you segued with the the who we are question, because that's what I picked. Can I read the, the passage? Please, yes. She wanted to hold on to the belief that she was a mere victim of human machination, that she was being torn away from her world by something that was out to get her for no reason other than the simple act of her being. But the truth was that the longer time stretched into infinity, 
the more she was starting to doubt that her nature was not reprehensible or unworthy of hate by the people and the things that were out to get her. It was contrary to her very essence to believe such things, certainly, but she had been through so much and she had lost everything. She had no more family or friends or future or dignity or really anything that made a human being human. All she had was the pain and the loss and the grief and the devastation and the temptation and the horror that she inflicted on countless people in her battle for survival. She was no more a human than she was a creature of God. She was simply there, being pulled away by the devil and searching for truer meaning where there was none. Somehow, at some point, she had started to believe the things that were told to her about mudbloods, about their blood being tainted and dirty, and their people being thieves who had taken magic from wizards. She no longer wanted to fight this fight because she had given up everything and she had given up everyone for nothing. And this is my favorite passage because it's such, it's a pivotal point in her character development. Everything has been lost. At this point, or in chapter 10, she hasn't found the Mudblood Initiative yet. So she really thinks that she's completely alone in this. She knows about their existence, but she doesn't really know anything more about them. Draco is gone with the information that she gave him. So she feels betrayed. She doesn't actually know what happened, but she feels betrayed by this. She's alone with Theo, who is a constant threat to her, who is constantly horrible to her and who she depicts as the devil now, but she, who she also has this very animalistic attraction to that she doesn't quite understand. And she feels like she's completely losing herself. So there's this moment of, I do not know who I am anymore because of everything that has happened, everything that I've done, but also everything that has happened to me everything that has been put on me against my will, against my consent. You know, she has been a slave for over a year at, at Goyle Manor, where she was, you know, imprinted with the, the manor's magic. So she was controlled at every step of the way and the manor was rebelling against her, right? The, the, the entire house was sabotaging her and putting her in more pain. So she is in that situation. And at this point, she doesn't just lose hope, she loses herself completely. I think there has to be a point when you're in that situation facing so much turmoil and thing after thing is happening that you cannot possibly know who you are anymore. And that's why that's my favorite passage. I'm so glad that you picked that. As I go through these fan fictions and make my notes, I often do pull certain passages out of the fan fiction and put them into my notes just so I can remember them later. Like the ones that feel significant, that was one of the ones that I pulled. When you started saying it, I was like, I think I have that one. So I searched in my notes just now. And sure enough, here is the entire thing. And I loved it. I even like highlighted certain parts of it because I felt like this feels so significant. And I think for me, from my perspectives, as I was reading this, this felt very much like a ego death for Hermione, right? Because we as humans, uh, we do this funny thing where we sort of construct the reality of our identity through the labels that we carry. We're a sister, we're a brother, we're a mother, we're a student or a teacher or, you know, this and that and all of these other things. And, uh, you know, who are you? When your labels fall away, who are you when you've lost everything that you ever had or you ever were? And that just felt so significant to me. And so like, 
oh, I'm so glad this is being explored because this feels good to explore this like really interesting ego death that she's gone through. And what does she do with that? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, that passage, that passage was so significant that I didn't actually write it. I spoke it and then I edited it. I spoke it to my computer. I used the dictation thing on Microsoft Word. I spoke it and then I went back and I heavily edited it because I spoke it in a stream of consciousness manner, but it felt so significant and so important. I couldn't sit down and think through it. I had to have the words out in the fastest way to do that. You know, the best way to do that was speaking it. I have since ever since discovered the uh, most dangerous writing app, which deletes your words if you're idle for more than five seconds, which yeah, <laughs> it had a similar process. You have to write. But at the time, I didn't have that. So the best way for me to do that, and I think it felt even more significant having it, having my voice speaking it because it felt like my body was feeling it. I had to speak it. The ego death is a pivotal moment. This is when the, the final parts of the story fall into place. She has lost everything. What is she going to do now? Yes. Oh my God. I love that you spoke that. I love that you put those words out <laughs> into the universe. That must have felt cathartic in a different way, speaking it out loud like oh, that. Oh yeah. Editing it was a bitch because my accent is so strange. So the computer didn't really take well in some of the words that I spoke, but Fortunately, my accent is what it is. So, but it was fine. I I knew what I wanted to say. But um, speaking it felt so good in the moment because, especially reaching that point, I was like, I had a big question of how effective have I been in conveying all of this? How effective have I been in telling the story? Like, not what's the expression they always say? Oh, show don't tell, right? I had this entire thing of how effective have I been in showing that throughout these you know past nine. This is the beginning of chapter 10, right? So these past nine chapters have happened. We have the full backstory of what happened to Hermione right off the wall. We know what happened with Harry and Ron. We know what happened with her year of, of disappearance when everyone assumed that she was dead and why that was the case. We have all of these elements. We have seen her journey with Theo and Draco. It's been, you know, difficult in its own way. We've reached that point. And I, I, I'm hoping that this passage... I didn't want to have it be longer or more explicit because I was hoping that everything that I put into the previous nine chapters translated into that scene. That's also why speaking it was so important because otherwise I think it would have rambled on in the writing and added more than was necessary. Yes. Well, and I think that that worked very well because you could see the sentiments in this paragraph in action in all of the chapters leading up to it, right? And then that little paragraph comes up and just kind of like slaps you in the face in a good way, in a good way, because it was just enough to drive the point home, right? And just enough to be like, ah, yes, like the sense that I was getting from what I read up to this point, I was on the right track with that. So I think that it worked very well how you did that. It was brilliant. And like you, it was one of my favorites as well, one of the ones that I pulled out from it. Now, I know that we're running against the clock here because we, we've been running into some fun tech issues today. So I want to make sure that we cover these last two questions before we head out. Um, the, the first one is, um, I'm just wondering what the most surprising thing is that you've learned with all of these years of writing and not just writing fan fiction, but I know you've written, um, original things too. So as you're looking back on your writing experiences through the years, I was just wondering what's the most surprising thing that you've learned about writing. 
And then, of course, the last question uh, and the final one is if you have any other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the podcast today. So I think the most surprising thing that I found is that I think writing doesn't have rules. I know it sounds strange to say, but I have written so many things over so many years and I've communicated with so many writers and I've read a lot of books and I have found that, yes, of course, you know, there are ways to write things better and there are ways to, you can always improve, but there are no rules. And I think writing is is one of these last bastions of creativity that we have in society. Uh, that's true of a lot of art, but I think writing specifically because it's so accessible. Anyone in the world can pick up a pencil and a piece of paper. Pretty much anyone in the world, like at this point, you know, anyone can start doing that. A lot of other things require, you know, everything requires improvement. But And so I think there are no rules. And I think that I have seen people be so fearless with writing some really incredible things that sound so strange when you hear about them. And I find that so like beautiful. And shout out to, so I've mentioned her left side down. Uh, she writes these amazing short pieces. Everything she writes is very short. It's usually drabble or double drabble, triple drabble length. It's amazing. My friend Nanirama, so that's double N in the middle and double M. <laughs> I always get it wrong. She also writes some of the most like greatest fem slash ever. She has a great fic with Millicent and Pansy, and this is the best Millicent characterization I've ever seen, ever. And then my friend Tylee, send events on trying who writes some of the best comedy i have ever read in my life it's so amazing she's so good at crack she's the first person who initiated me to crack and she does it so well i'm gonna shout out two more people i'm sorry just <laughs> friends patrice of real please read patrice's fic she writes marauder's error everything in her works is has a continuity in the universe it's the patrice of real cinematic universe her writing is genuinely so good she has an entire fic about pizza, baking, and being sad. It's amazing. Highly recommend. Poppy and Remus, like who would have thought? Amazing. And of course, my friend Prim and my friend Glow. I have so many friends. Okay, so I have six people all getting a shout out. Prim is on the podcast, of course, and then Glow. Uh, Glow Ivy writes uh, great Dramionies, and she puts such original twist in a lot of the things that she writes. She has a fic where... Hermione has a child with Draco, but it's not Draco who doesn't know. It's Hermione who doesn't remember that she had this child. Oh, that sounds interesting. It's so interesting. Go on Glow Ivy's profile, read it. Patrice Real, Sentiment Sunshine, Kylie, Nanorama, Left Side Down, Primavera. And I think I think that's everyone. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. We will make sure to get the links to everybody up on the show notes so people can check those out. Venomous Barbie, this has been a fantastic conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time out to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, it was very chaotic, but chaos blue. I mean, it was it was great. It was such a good time. <laughs> it's in the name, right? Yes, we can thank our tech difficulties today, but we made it through to the end. 
That's the point, right? Um, we did it together. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.